You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, my name is Mark Inneth Ponhuis, and I am the Professor of Material Science and Surf Engineering at the University of Wollongong. More important, I'm the co-host for Lab Notes. I'm even more excited to introduce my guest, Tom Wilson, the founder of WaveChanger. Tom was born on the Channel Islands in the United Kingdom, and he is a designer and environmental scientist by training, and his education included the University of Salford in the United Kingdom and the University of New England in Australia. Tom has had two careers. In the first one, where he worked as a designer and a graphic artist. And in a second career, which almost ran simultaneously and involves social justice and working for nonprofits. He has even been at a World Cup as the assistant coach of the Street Socceros. Tom founded WaveChanger in 2019 after writing a thesis on the subject of surfing and sustainability. From this came WaveChanger, a purpose-driven, non-for-profit that he has built from the ground up. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Tom, which we recorded on a sunny day in my living room while eating cakes. And he has a unique perspective on sustainability, social justice, and the surfing industry. Please join me for this fascinating conversation with my guest, Tom Wilson, the founder of WaveChanger. Enjoy. G'day, Tom. Welcome to Lab Nodes, and thank you for being my guest. No worries. Thanks for having me. So let me dive straight into this. What made you decide to found Wave Changer? Oh, there's different elements to the story. It's um, it it's evolved. It's not how it. Uh, was originally planned. I can admit that. <clears throat> um, I would say it's changed shape um, probably about three or four times. Um, I did a master's thesis on the subject of sustainability in surfing. It was about looking at material science and consumer behavior in the industry. Uh, a one-year unbiased study of the industry and I really, really enjoyed that. And then I thought I would take that and do something with it and the first step was creating a website which was called sustainabilityandsurfing.com and it was just going to be a research website for surf related stuff and I created a template and then just in my own spare time I started messing around with making recycled plastic fins from plastic I found at the beach um, and I, I made a prototype after making a timber mold and then making a, um, a sort of a, a more technical mold after that. And it escalated and, it, and I put some of this on social media. And then we got approached by Five Oceans, who are a fin manufacturer from, yep. uh, I think they're sort of German, Australian. I think they, they lived over here. They're, they're a German couple. Um, and they wanted to either collaborate or somehow work together. Um, and I think they even sort of offered to 
for us to kind of take over if, if the offer was right. And we really uh, examined their finances and looked at the operations. And it was really cool because it was taking plastic from Indonesia out of the ocean and making fins with it. But at the time, as exciting as it was, and my initial thought was, yeah, like, this is great. This, you know, it could be a wave changer fin or something. Um, and everyone was excited. And then I realized it was kind of moving away from what the original roots of what I studied, what I did was. And it's not so much creating recycled plastic fins because other people were doing that too. Um, and I believe there was another brand doing it very well. Um, and at that point, it was decided to go into more R&D, research, innovation, and being a somewhat peak body for the industry um, without any um, vested interest in anyone, no bias. We're not sort of funded by any of the surf organizations. In fact, there's no money coming in. It was more an idea just to help the surf industry t uh, transition to more eco-friendly materials and an eco-friendly mindset, which is happening everywhere with the world right now. With any product, there's so much pressure. There's even pressure on the, the soccer industry, which I think is amazing, which I, I thought would never happen. Um, and I, I think even Manchester City in England have got coffee cups that are edible that you can buy in the stadium. Um, so I thought, right, I'll take this research. I love surfing. Um, let's create an organization that helps the industry and supports it to a cleaner, greener future. And we're not calling anyone out for doing bad things. We're providing research and solutions to inspire the industry and also almost like hold their hand to the next step. And it's become slightly bigger than the hobby that it was. It's, it's quite time consuming and energy consuming but because of myself and the people involved are all on the same wavelength, excuse the pun, um, <laughs> we're, it's a passionate project that we don't mind doing. And we've got some interesting people involved, um, such as yourself, Mark. We're going to declare that at some point for my involvement, for sure. Yeah, um, but it, it, it's great to, you know, just to have conversations with people like yourself and get advice and get connected to other people. I love talking to people about it. And then somebody might say, hey, you should check out, you know, so-and-so. I actually got um, uh, recommended to, to approach you by Susie Crick, who is yep. the um, previous chair of Surfrider in Australia. And a few years ago, she said, oh, this guy Mark lives around the corner. And I was visiting Susie, and I had my daughter in the camper van. Yep, I remember I said, that day very well. Yeah, yeah, I thought, right, I'll just give him a call. I'm, I'm here. And then we met up at the University of Wollongong, and I think we chatted for a couple of times. I went off to the museum, and yep. then afterwards we had another chat, and I think my daughter was losing her uh, rag. <laughs> Getting a bit bored with <laughs> yeah. us yapping away about surfing. Yeah, so it's all evolved from there, really. And... I think it gets to a certain point after a year where you sort of have a conversation with yourself and say, this is, you either stop and you say, I've given it a good crack, but it's taken up too much time and energy or, and I, I keep going because I get feedback from people and, um, and I just sort of believe that there's enough people interested in it 
and it's the right time in history to to make things more eco-friendly and educate people. And I think there's so much um, focus on stuff, making stuff. I think there's less focus on education and research. And I think that's more valuable because the problem with the world is that there's way too much stuff getting made that's cheap, that's disposable, single use, that's plastic, that isn't biodegradable. So if we could spend more money more grants on the research and education side, then surely that will mean the next generation will have the right mindset. But I see a lot of perhaps greenwashing on how to make things more eco-friendly or just a slight marketing thing that someone can say, hey, we've, we've got board shorts made of recycled plastic, which is perhaps a step forward, but those board shorts will, will have an end of life at some point and yeah, I think, oh, I, I could talk about this all day, but in terms of starting Wave Changer, it's been organic and it's, um, it's not necessarily uh, finished the way it is right now. There's still some more iterations to happen, but I'm, I'm quite pleased where it sits at the moment. You said a couple of interesting things. One is when, when you mentioned Manchester City, I was immediately back at Main Road in 1998 when I used to live in Manchester, but we're not going to go there. But you said something about, you know, people add recycled materials. So when somebody buys, let's say, board shorts that have recycled products in there, they're not completely made out of recycled materials, right? It's a certain percentage that qualifies you to use the level and I think you mentioned five oceans. I believe five oceans is about 10 to 20% recycled material, but I could be wrong because it's, it's a while ago since I looked at the packaging. Mm. Yep. Um, <clears throat> a really good example. And I, I, and I love this brand. They're doing so much with their ethos and everything they do is Patagonia. They're, the Patagonia Ulex range of wetsuits are made with natural rubber. Mm. <clears throat> And I've seen a, a diagram, which you can <clears throat> probably find online somewhere, where it's a cross-section through their wetsuit. And, and I don't like calling out brands, but uh, I think it says 85% um, is natural rubber of the wetsuit, but it's 85% of a certain part of the wetsuit. So there's still, <clears throat> there's still the inner lining which is the kind of, you know, the warm layer on the winter wetsuits. And um, th they can be made out of recycled PET, um, plastic water bottles, uh, but or they can be polyester. Um, and then there's the, the glue, the seams, the, uh, the graphics. You know, Vistler are doing embossed logos, so it's literally a print onto it, a pressure print, so there's no no inks there, but it, it can be misleading. And I, I totally see your point with the fins as well, where a bit of information is shown, but it's not the full picture, but it shows it's they're flexing their green muscles or credentials. But, it, but it's a good way forward, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I have to remind- That was actually the point that was, I was trying to sort of also make, even though it's not all recycled, it's a step forward. 100%. And it, it, that is better than sticking with. And, and I don't think there's a quantum leap from one way of existing to another. You know, you look at the car industry, 
and electric cars are a big step forward, but then there's the battery issue and there's the, the computing, you know, the amount of metal and um, electronics that are in a car that didn't used to be there. So there's, they're creating a new problem, but it's better than the combustion engine and all of the carbon monoxide, which is getting spat into yep. the environment. So I, I guess with surfing, it's the same. There's a lot of steps forward. They're not massive leaps but it is an improvement. So I don't want to I don't want to bag anyone out. I think that what Patagonia is doing is way better than any other brand. Um, but there is some exciting stuff happening in surfing right now, which is just coming to the surface. And I think in the next five to 10 years, it's going to be a huge change. I think it's just at the, the tipping point now mm. where the big brands have ignored the pressure a little bit and maybe done a little bit of a kind of uh, virtue signaling and saying they're doing stuff, but now it's, I, th I think there's gonna be some big changes. So you mentioned surfing. Um, how long have you been surfing? I've been surfing, um, I was a bodyboarder in my teens. Um, myself and my friends used to cycle to school with these giant bags on our back with the bodyboard in. And, a and, and that is on Jersey? Is that That's correct? in Jersey in the Channel Islands. So we would cycle to school, chuck our stuff in the bushes, go to school, and then after school have our stuff and just go to a beach where the waves were not great and it was freezing. Um, but we would just mess around in the waves. And then at, I think maybe at the age of 14 or 15, I got my first surfboard and haven't looked back. And surfed on Jersey, but it was freezing. Water temperature is maximum. 17 or 18 in summer wow. for about a week. And then <laughs> the rest, the week. Yeah. And the rest <laughs> of the year, it's, it can go down to single digits where you're wearing a four or five mil wetsuit, gloves, boots, a hood. And yeah, that's when you, you sort of test your dedication. And then I've been in Australia for 14 years, so it's um, much nicer surfing here. So then, you know, you're in, you're in Australia and you're surfing here, and then suddenly in late 2021 you are a member of a surfing team going to compete and one of your team members is a seven-time world champion Lane Beachley <laughs> can you you know what was that like I'm just yeah so that was um that was I, the... I think I would fall off a wave straight away if she was watching <laughs> yeah that was, that's not far off what happened actually um it was the surf aid cup um last year and that was at Manly, and it was a fundraising event where each team gets a professional surfer on their team. And we had Lane Beachley, who happens to be involved in, in Wave Changer as well. Um, so there's maybe some conflicting interest there, but I think it's a fundraising event, so no one cares. Um, and we didn't progress either, and the conditions were pretty bad. I'm not going to blame the conditions, but um, everybody gets two waves in 10 minutes. So... I had my two waves that were not very good. Um, I think I scored a, a two on one of the waves. And then but you a, got waves, right? I did. Yeah. I did, but I'd rather, I don't know, maybe in another world it would have been better if I didn't have any waves. I could have just said, oh, the time ran out. Um, but yeah, we had Lane and a few other uh, mates, and it was a great experience. There were a few other um, existing pros and ex-pros there. There was Matt Wilkinson, uh, Adrian Buckin. Um, and yeah, oh, it was tough conditions and it was pouring down with rain, so it could have been a better day, but it was good fun and everyone came together and we raised loads of money 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool being around top surfers and you, you almost have to try and not act like a, a fanboy and just yeah. act normal. Yeah. Just, just surf, not fall off. Yeah. So you grew up, as you said before, in the United Kingdom or the, the Channel Islands and you did your undergraduate degree in computer-aided design and drafting, which you finished in a number of years ago. Right? And then your next educational experience is 10 years after finishing your first degree. And it's in a completely different area. So you're moved to, the, to Australia, as you said. You're at the University of New England. And you're embarking on a master's in environmental science. So question is, actually there's two questions. Right? So what, what made you decide to go back to uni after 10 years of doing other things? And what made you decide to do environmental science? Because it's very different from what you... Because you were worked for architectural bureaus, I believe, and you were a CAD designer, mm. right? So, can you talk us through that? Yeah, so I was working part-time at the time, three days a week. So, I decided to study. I just thought um, I was in the mindset of wanting to learn. I would say my under, undergraduate degree, when I was, uh, you know, like between the age of 18 or 19 to 22, I was not in the right mindset to study. I was young, I was excited to be away from home. And I, I don't remember an awful lot about my studies, but 10 years later I thought, right, working part-time, um, I did a lot of research. I thought about it for a while. Um, I was thinking of doing something in the, the range of social impact, um, community development, because I was doing some, some work in that area at the time. But um, at the time at home, we were doing a lot of gardening. We had a worm farm. We had like a little irrigation system. Um, we were involved in a, a local food co-op, which I'm still a member of, the Manly Food Co-op. So there was a lot of that happening on the kind of peripheral side of life. Um, I hate to admit it, but was even watching Gardening Australia. There's nothing wrong with watching Gardening Australia. I'm a keen gardener myself. So. Yeah, and was like taking tips. And it was a, a period in my life where I was open to, I think I was channeling my inner retiree mind, where I was like, oh, what, what can I do? Uh, so I decided to study. And environmental science, I could see that the world was, you know, that was becoming an important thing. So... Selfishly, I was thinking, like, what would I want to do for work as well? So there was work in mind as well. Um, and it turns out I did the degree very slowly. I did it over about three or four years um, so that I could absorb the information. And I think if I could recommend to someone to study, and it doesn't work this way for anyone because of time restraints or whatever or money, but if you can just do it slowly and really absorb the information... My undergraduate degree, I remember just cramming everything in, especially at the last minute. But this was more like reading a book before bed. It was, um, yeah, really good. And I, I came out of the degree after doing a thesis as well, feeling, right, I'm, I'm ready for a job in this industry. I felt uh, I've got the right tools. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a nice experience. It wasn't stressful. So you, you have a an established track record, like in between finishing your first degree, 
and even up until now of, of working for and with charities, right? You worked with the, the big issue, Save the Children, Youth Services, and Mission Australia. Now that's a world away from what you did as a CAD designer. So did you always have a, an interest in working with or for people in need? Um, so I think I've had three careers. That's the way I think about it in the design and architecture world. And then in 2008, my hours got reduced at the design office I was working for in Sydney down to four days a week. So I had Mondays off. So I decided, because I like soccer, I decided to volunteer for street soccer, which is run by The Big Issue. And it's a free program for homeless and disadvantaged people. Um, anyone that's a recovering alcoholic or anyone with just some sort of issue where they would not feel comfortable at a normal football club or soccer club. And this is welcoming, it's free, you get free food from Oz Harvest. And I volunteered one day a week and loved it. Did that for about a year, made friends with the staff and then an opportunity became available. And I just thought, right, I'll go for it. And I changed careers because I, I ended up doing that full time for six years. And, and then did some youth work and really got into that area. Um, it wasn't planned, it was a result of losing hours, but then I enjoyed it and took a pay cut and realized, yes, I, I like doing this every day. And then I was working three or four days a week and started studying to do the environmental science masters. So it's all just happened, there was no plan at the very start, it's just sort of happened based on circumstances at the time and reaching a crossroads and thinking what do I feel like doing now um, I'm making a bit of a calculated gamble on the next step it's, yeah, so, it's so as part of that time how did you end up as an assistant coach for the street soccerers going to Poland yeah you've done your research um, <laughs> of course I've done my yeah, research uh, that was at the time I was the state coordinator for street soccer program which is overseeing the New South Wales and a program in Canberra so there's street soccer programs um, across the country and I feel like I was doing a, a, an okay job I was fully into the job I was enjoying it um, and I guess it was a reward for my work I think um, and I got asked if I would like to travel to the homeless world cup as a as a coach and I, it was for me a a career highlight or a life highlight because that was two weeks away and it was the hardest thing I've ever done but oh, actually being a parent uh, but also the most enjoyable thing I've done um, there was about 58 countries from around the world represented and it was huge and it was just a lot of fragile personalities all in one place so th there wasn't much time to rest and we arrived in Poland uh, jet-lagged. And I think on the first day our goalkeeper rolled his ankle and we had a really, really good goalkeeper who we were depending on. Um, and he rolled his ankle, so the team were down, he was really down, and, and then halfway through the tournament he decided to come back and he said he was fine and he strapped his ankle, but he wasn't fine, he just really wanted to play. So there's all the personalities and emotions. Um, but all the players get to, to mingle with teams from Brazil, you know, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, and it was amazing. And yeah, 
really good. And it's um, because it's slightly different rules. It's um, it's all genders, so you know you can you can have a female player if you want. And we had a female player, and uh, she scored a goal against Portugal in one of the games. And I think Portugal got to like the quarters or the semis. They were really good. We were not so good. Um, and when she scored, we all just went berserk, and it was amazing. And it was like we had won it um, because she she was like really low on confidence and self belief and. And then when she scored, she was just sort of glowing for days. Um, so it was a great experience and, um, yeah, something that's sort of quite uh, special to me when I look back. Nice. So this podcast series is very interested in commercialization and in particular research commercialization. So I was wondering if you could give us some thoughts on what you think, how sustainability or where sustainability and commercialization is at in Australia or where it should be. Um, I think it's a very important area right now where it's taken really seriously. And I think every organization is plowing a lot of money into it. Um, where maybe 10 years ago was, uh, a, a kind of sparkly side thing that is not necessary, but you can show off about now. Now it's expected and there's pressure. I think there's politicians that previously didn't really care about the environment who are conveniently now talking about it a lot more because it's what the voters expect. So I think in terms of revenue and money, I think the government is going to be giving out a lot. Actually, the government is giving out a lot of money mm. and grants for uh, bringing manufacturing back to Australia because of perhaps political tensions with China, but also the environmental impacts much lower, if, and also the benefit of jobs and creating industries. You know, for example, surfing. I think surfboards should be made in Australia because I can't think of another country where the surfing ratio to population would be so high. So wouldn't it make sense to make them here? Yeah, and then absolutely. If, you know, if we make loads of them, they could be exported to Southeast Asia. It shouldn't be the other way around because I don't think there's too many people surfing in Thailand and China, but they make you know, over 90% of the world's boards. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities now, commercial-wise, for young people in particular to grab the bull by the horns and come up with ideas and run with them and get funding um, apply for accelerator programs, you know, those startup programs which are everywhere now. Um, and if you've got an idea, get together with friends. Um, I think there's a lot of money that's going to be put into environmental stuff now and even more so going forward. Um, I think it's an easier industry to get in than others. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. So what do you think is Australia good at and what are we not so good at in this sphere? Um, in sustainability? Well, you've, you've already mentioned the example of surfboard manufacturing in Australia. It's largely done by small, not small shapers, but let's call it low volume shapers. The large volume shaping is done outside of Australia. Mm. Right? That's an example from the surfing industry. So what, what are we not so good at and what are we good at? Um, oh, and not know, necessarily, I mean, a, it doesn't have to be surfing, of course. It's more yeah. 
more in general? I think, um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're good at is not so good for the environment. Um, exporting coal and um, I think there's like huge lithium reserves in Australia, which is, yeah. it, depending on who you talk to, it's somewhat worrying because lithium is going to be critical with all of the uh, batteries going forward. Um, and also I think at some point, like, I think Australia has some really critical, um, you know, important minerals under the ground, like metals as well. There's not a lot of talk at the moment about metals being kind of uh, pulled out the ground and abused like oil and gas. At the moment, there's a lot of focus on, you know, keep the oil in the ground. And the, I think mainly because of the damage when it goes wrong, you know, oil spills. Yeah. But um, metal doesn't kind of form overnight, you know. So I think at some point, maybe not for a while, not in our lifetime, there might be some questions about how much of these minerals under the ground, natural resources, are left. And metal going forward with electronics perhaps is an area that, you know, in 100 years will be contentious. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Yeah, no, that's a... Yeah. That's, that's a a good, a good point. Um, so talking about sustainability, you know, how do you cope with people that do not share your views of sustainability? Um, I, I don't like to create any barriers. I, I made the decision a, what, maybe a couple of years ago where I used to kind of, on social media or, or wherever, show bad examples. I think there's enough people doing that. And I feel it's a bit counterproductive. So everything that Wave Changer does is positive. It's showcasing technologies um, or examples of um, stuff that's happening outside of the surfing world that could be applied to the surfing world. So I think the surfing world's in a bit of a bubble thinking they have all the best innovations. There's actually the best innovations in food and architecture. Mm. Um, and I think that if somebody is not eco-friendly minded, it doesn't bother me anymore because I think it takes up too much energy and time trying to convince people when really it's, I think it's going to happen. It's a matter of how quickly. And I think I like to be a part of bringing solutions up and putting them in the limelight or helping people develop them. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, bad sentiment around environmental stuff and I think the younger generations coming through now are more clued up. I think it's amazing how many young people are turning out for the school strikes um, who are coming up with amazing ideas. Um, I think it's the future is all these young people with their innovations and their passion. You know, the thing where you say the can't teach an old dog new tricks. I think that is kind of true where there's a lot of older people who perhaps just dismiss a lot of new stuff. And maybe that's just where humans are. Anything that's new or, <laughs> uh, you know, strikes fear into them rather than, and not everyone, but um, yeah, I think the future is bright. It's just a matter of how quickly and how critically things happen before, you know, the earth is an imbalance. And, you know, we already see with different crazy events happening around the world, the earth is sort of not quite uh, a balanced place right now. Yeah. Okay. So we, we, you've already hinted at it, but we should probably disclose it 
formally as well that I'm on your advisory board of Wave Changer. You, you mentioned it. One of the things I'm, I'm interested in, I've obviously followed Wave Changer and I'm involved with Wave Changer, but can you talk us through the experience of setting up Wave Changer and in particular, you know, what was hard, but also what was easy? Um, I would say it's for anyone that wants to do something similar with starting something, it's um, a long process and just to be patient. Um, and in some ways, if I would be at the start again, I would like to be more further down the line now. But then also, I have to kind of acknowledge that it's exceeded my expectations in some ways too. So I think just have a long-term project in mind that can be... I think the best thing that has happened is keeping it flexible and adaptable and not assuming that I know anything or I know the answers because I don't think one person alone can, can do everything. I think getting people's advice and constantly tweaking based on feedback. Um, and I think what has worked well is collaborations and networking and having an advisory board to bounce ideas off, to, to just um, get feedback and reassurance, um, chatting with people in the industry that you're working in, I think is really important just to get, I feel like I've spent about a year or two just understanding the industry. I didn't plan to do that, but it's almost been this extended research project where I haven't had to submit a paper, but I'm just absorbing all this information in my brain and planning things and, uh, you know, thinking about the next project or idea, but it's all because of, I've chatted to all scales of the industry, not just the, the eco-friendly brands or uh, surfboard makers, it's more assessing the whole industry and then you can kind of see what gaps need to be filled. Um, so I think that that has worked, just being open-minded to um, absorbing information but also sharing it, sharing a lot of the stuff that we've learned um, because it's, it's sort of inadvertently made us a bit of a trusted voice in the industry where um, you know, there's other organizations such as Surfrider and Sustainable Surf in the US, but I think we're kind of more focused on materials and innovation, which makes us unique. So finding something that sets you apart, you know, you don't have to reinvent the, the wheel, the, the structural kind of makeup of the organization of having an advisory board and having social media and a website and having an annual publication and a uh, you know, an impact report, all these things anyone can incorporate into their organization, but there has to be something which is a point of difference to mm. stand out. Um, and I think to answer your question, the hardest thing has been um, the impact it has on my life. And, you know, if you're really kind of obsessed or passionate about something, it sort of takes over and it's sort of in my brain every day and I, you know, I see stuff every day and I'm writing down, oh, that would make a good idea for something or, um, and, I, and I've read about people who start stuff, you know, at some point you've got to let it go or step back and, you know, that sort of terrifies me. I don't really want to, 
but I know that, yeah, I can't let it take control of me. So that's probably been the hardest bit, how it kind of consumes you. But I think if it doesn't consume you and you don't have that level of passion, then maybe it's not for the right reasons. Yeah. Maybe you're just doing it for, for money or status or something. Um, but I think if you know that it's, you know, I'm sure you're the same with your uh, surf engineers and surf flex lab. You're happy to do that in your own spare time because you love it. And it's, it's essentially a hobby. I see yeah. wave changer as a hobby, not <laughs> yeah. a job. The, the other way of looking at it is just ruining your hobby. As people have told me, I've ruined surfing for myself because yeah. I can't just go surfing. I need sensors when I surf. <laughs> I need to observe. I need yeah. to check. I need to test. Um, yeah. I have another hobby, beer making. I'm on the verge of starting to ruin that as well. That's, yeah. That's, that's, but yeah, it's probably a good point. It's, if you're passionate about something, it will come through. Yeah. Right? Because yep. you're doing it yep. from your own self. And I think that if you have passionate people involved and also people who believe in that passion as well, they're not going to support. So Lane Beachley's involved. She's on the advisory board. And she's, you know, she said to me once that, oh, I can see you're passionate about this and she often says what can we do to support you so to have people that help you especially when you dip a bit I feel like it's hard to maintain the momentum all the time and sometimes I dip a bit and I think what am I doing like why why am I doing this and then you know sent out an email last week just the monthly email and a few people replied you know with some nice feedback and that kind of perks me up again and I you know, at that point, I had my laptop open for another hour doing stuff because the ego perhaps has a bit of a, a pat on the back. And yeah. in some ways, I have to use that kind of, uh, I don't know, use the, the ego in a sensible way so that it's productive and, and not carried away for me, but just to keep doing something that, you know, in the wider scheme of things means the organization is is getting better all the time um what what was yeah. easy easy was there anything easy i should probably ask um i find easy and enjoyable for me is the graphic design because i've got that design background i grew up with it so rather than paying an intern or or a student or whatever i do all that myself because again it's like a hobby and quite often i'll i'll do the animations at night have a glass of wine, listen to some music and spend two hours doing a funny little animation that promotes an article and I'll be in that zone loving it. Uh, so I enjoy that and I also, I find, I'm now at the stage where I find it quite easy to talk about it and maybe the first six months I didn't because I was nervous or perhaps I didn't have a full understanding of, and there's still so much more to learn but I feel like now I've got a bigger understanding that I can talk about it without having notes in front of me. The first three talks that I did, I had notes. And the first talk I did, I read the notes word for word and didn't even look up. So I was essentially doing like a book reading yeah. uh, with some slides, but yeah, I was just sweating a lot. I can probably still give my very first talk that I gave when I was an undergraduate student because I wrote it out just like you said. So I still have it somewhere in my office. Yeah. And I learned it by heart and stood there and like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, as, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the graphic design. One thing I haven't asked you yet is how did you end up in Australia? Or why did you end up in Australia? Um, oh, well, sorry, you might not have ended up here. Why are you in Australia? Yeah. 
Um, I came here in 2004 with my best mate on a one-way ticket to go backpacking. Um, that was, yeah, 2004. We travelled around Australia, did some work while we travelled to fund the travelling, and then he continued on. He did, a, uh, I think, a farming stint where he got another year extension. I met a Canadian girl, um, my ex-girlfriend, and, and then after Australia, we travelled a bit, and I went to live in Canada um, for a couple of years and sort of moved between Canada and the UK and working, traveling, um, and then came back to Australia in two, the beginning of 2008 on her student visa. And then we separated not long after that and I got sponsored in a job in a design office and then that gave me permanent residency. And then I became a citizen probably like six years ago. Um, and I've been here 14 years now wow. and I love it. Did you surf in Canada? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, what sort of wetsuit did you wear in Canada? <laughs> yeah, 10 mil. No, um, it was, yeah, I, uh, where was it? Went to Tofino, Sombrio. So on Vancouver Island. Yeah. Where yeah. you can surf and yeah. ski and it's just I've been there. It's stunning. Yeah, it's really nice. Amazing. It really is. Um, yeah, the surf, oh, I didn't really get too lucky with waves in terms of quality, but yeah, cold and pebbly beaches, you know, it reminded me of the UK a little bit. And then you come to Australia and you just, you're spoiled. There's amazing yeah. beaches here and it's just... I mean, currently on the east coast of Australia where we are, we're in board shorts, right? Yeah. Happy days. The temperature is, I think, the, the warmest it's been since I've been here. It was nearly 26 degrees yesterday. Celsius and yeah, board shorts, and it feels like a, a lukewarm bath. Yeah, not I rubbing it. I in. surfed next to some people this morning, and they were in three twos, and they said they were a bit warm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the, the good thing about a wetsuit or a rash vest is you don't get sunburnt. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let me go back to a more serious topic. So. Do you think is there going to be a change, so this is particularly about sustainability, in the way we consume the surfing industry in the next few years? Yeah, and I think it's going to apply to every product. Um, yeah, I think there's, going to, there's a different approach from different manufacturers, different countries, but I think overall there's a lot of behaviors that are slowly changing and there will be more and more pressure uh, such as um, there's already a lot of materials that are being outlawed so I think in New South Wales this year single-use polystyrene is going to be banned so like we said earlier I don't think there's like one leap to and it's the same with the coal industry I don't think something's going to stop tomorrow I think that they're, you know, the government's sensibly sort of transitioning things and then uh, I think hopefully providing support with resources and f financial kind of incentives to help industries transition. Um, so I think materials will play a big part, uh, ushering in new materials that aren't as toxic, but also maybe um, like disposal plans that come with products not just you know, look at the side of a can and it will tell you which bin to put it in. I think bigger products should have a disposal plan 
And maybe in the future, maybe in like 50 years, it's the law. Maybe if you get a TV, it's the law to give it back to the manufacturer and you've got to prove it. You know, we've seen with COVID how the law can change really quick depending on situations. And maybe you, re you return your TV and you get um, $100 off a new one or $50 cash back, you know, so in context of what's right. Um, and then the manufacturer can take it apart, probably with robots. This is happening now with Apple. They use the, these robots take apart their phones. You can see this on YouTube, and then they reuse the, you know, the, the aluminium, nickel, and all these, you know, metals. Um, so I think that the consumer behavior, the relationship with incentives, um, a lot more ratings on products. I think what you see in the food industry, the five star here in Australia, the five star health rating. And then on appliances, you know, the water standard, uh, water rating and energy rating, um, maybe that'll be on surfboards in the future, like a five-star rating yeah. that lists the materials. Maybe there's an expiry date on the board, and after two years, the plant-based materials start to weaken, so you return it, and then the factory, you know, in an ideal world, the factories here in Australia deal with the boards coming back so there's no virgin materials being pulled out the ground every two minutes to pump out hundreds of thousands of surfboards. I hear you. And it could, it could set an example to the whole world. That's why I think the, the surf industry, the WSL, has already said equal wages since 2019. Yep. And they're doing a lot of good conservation projects with WSL Pure, <clears throat> um, diversity and that kind of social awareness is really big so I think the next step is to get the athletes on eco-friendly surfboards um, which I don't think is too far away but it's not going to happen this year or next I don't think yeah yeah so I'm, I'm keeping an eye on time because you quite generously drove down to my house on on the south coast so I have two very quick last questions for you first one is what's next for you um, what's next for me is um, it's I've got a list of things to do, and it's figuring out what, uh, which one is more important on the list. Um, I think time is my biggest enemy. Um, I like going surfing; that takes time. I have a daughter, and <laughs> it's just oh, sounds know. very familiar. Yeah, and it's you know I don't want to say oh poor me because everyone's busy now and it, I think the next thing for me is to take Wave Changer to the next level I'd say for the the last two years it has been about um, creating a framework networking getting the name out there um, chatting with people in important positions to explain what we do and I think that is now that will never stop but it's now got to the point where there's a couple of big ideas um, we've got an annual publication called Surfer versus Planet, and the next one will be out perhaps in about a month or so. Um, but another big idea, which I can't elaborate on too much, hoping to roll out this year, which is is the main idea. Which uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish I could tell you more about it, but it's it's sort of um, it was mentioned on a call with a few of the team members in November last year. So I didn't come up with the idea. Someone came up with 
an idea and then another person improved that idea by offering a, an idea on top of that. And the person who came up with the first idea very sort of humbly said, that's amazing, just forget my idea. Um, so yeah, it's a bit, bit of like, mystery. A bit of mystery, you gotta, but... You gotta, people have to keep on tuning in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, tune <laughs> in. Um, but it, it, for, after two years of having different ideas that you know, were okay, but didn't spark anything, this is like, okay, that makes sense. And the way we're positioned now, it makes sense to do this. And I feel sort of strange explaining something that I can't talk about, but so I guess yeah. stay tuned, right? So yeah. thank you for an absolute fascinating chat and conversation and hearing your thoughts. And let me finish with a question that I ask all of my guests. Are you a good loser? or a bad loser when you play games, and why? <laughs> I, um, I'm, a, I'm a good loser. I have been playing tennis for a year now with my mate every Monday evening, and it was because of lockdown that we started playing, and I've never won. I haven't won a set. <laughs> All right, because... <laughs> You're uh, a good loser then. Yeah, but I just really enjoy it, and I can see that there's a bit of progress being made, and I'm getting closer to beating him. So I'm, I'm not a bad loser because I see sport as, I'd, I've never taken it seriously. I, I like surfing as a fun social thing. And maybe I've just never been good enough at sport to, to need to take it seriously. Yeah. And even with work as well, you know, if something doesn't happen, whatever, it's fine. Well, let's end, end there. Thanks again, Tom. No worries, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. A fascinating conversation with a fascinating person. And I will hand you over to Leo Stevens to finish this episode of Lab Notes. See you next time. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more, in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris.